Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1225. Further exploration of Nazi connections to the JFK assassination. This is being recorded on February 4th of the year 2022. Before we get into the subject material of the program, uh, again, three quick links. All of these are at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post. One link will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Terrafractal, sometimes by other people. The other link, the second link, will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made of For the Record by Sister Station, WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, then Sister Station WFNU is doing just that, and you can subscribe. And the third link will enable you to obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive with all of my roughly 43 years on the air, uh, both written, well, but both roughly 43 years of my broadcasts and also lectures, as well as a copious amount of written material, basically everything that is on the SpitfireList.com website is on the flash drive. There is a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files, and I get no money whatsoever from this, and it is available for a tax-deductible and altogether modest fee. Again, I do not think that we are going to make it as a society or a civilization. I think we are doomed. Uh, Again, they don't call me good time Dave Emery for nothing. And I think, frankly, that all listeners have an obligation to get that flash drive and in so doing to make themselves a repository of the information that I have developed now for the better part of half a century at uh, no profit for myself and uh, a considerable degree of trouble on various levels. So please get the flash drive. Now, again, this uh, program is titled Further Exploration of Nazi Connections to the, it should be really Nazi Involvement with the Assassination of JFK. And this, again, as I said in the last program, this is not sensationalist in any way. Wow, the JFK assassination. Wow, Nazis, look at this. Wow. Uh, But rather, it is not only a very historical, important, uh, historically important event, but one in which the participation at various levels of Nazi elements uh, exemplifies uh, a much larger political and historical truth. Uh, For many years, I viewed uh, this country's incorporation of not only the Reinhard Galen spy outfit, which uh, former Marine Corps Colonel William Corison, who was the aide to the Church Committee in the 70s, termed in his book, The Armies of Ignorance, quote, a front 
for Odessa Nazis, basically for the SS, and it was quite accurate. It also was our eyes and ears on the former Soviet Union during the Cold War. It became the West German, now the German Intelligence Service, and was the de facto NATO Intelligence Service as well. It also uh, basically intersected through the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations in a powerful way with the Republican Party itself. There was an entire uh, Nazi and fascist element in the Republican Party called the Republican Heritage the Republican uh, Heritage Ethnic Outreach Council. Maybe I may be uh, misordering uh, those words, but uh, Basically, there was a, is a Nazi element in the Republican Party. And I viewed that and the importation of the Project Paperclip scientists as just that, as the importation of these elements. But really, those were exemplary of a much deeper and more profound phenomenon, which was the fact that uh, unbeknownst to uh, our fighting units, uh, at least most of them anyway, including the vast bulk of the general staff and the officer corps, uh, even before the guns fell silent, uh, through uh, powerful political elements that were linked to Wall Street, we were uh, basically merging not only with uh, Nazi Germany, with the national security and industrial elements of Nazi Germany, as well as their financial structure. Really, we were joined with them since the pre-war period, and we were doing the same thing with Japan as well. And... Uh, the merging of the U.S. with the Axis, again, unbeknownst not only to the, the fighting men and uh, in the ranks, but also to the officer corps, uh, largely unknown to this day, sadly. Uh, that is what happened. And we're going to jump right in where we left off last week. Last week we were talking about the fellow named Thomas Eli Davis, he was a veteran spook and a gun runner, and uh, a little bit about his background. By the way, the book on which we are relying again is Coup in Dallas, subtitled The Decisive Investigation into Who Killed JFK. It was authored by Hank P. Alberelli, Jr., published posthumously. He has left us and has a forward by Dick Russell and a number of co-authors as well. It was published in hardcover by Skyhorse Publishers. Uh, Thomas Eli Davis uh, had a, sort of a, a strange career arc, and at one point, uh, after uh, a brush with the law, he went to the Lafayette Clinic in Detroit, where he underwent a number of procedures, apparently related to mind control. Jumping right in and about some of that background, one such practice was recommended by the Lafayette Clinic's neurologist, Dr. Ernst Roden, R-O-D-I-N, who achieved wide notoriety with his recommendation that individuals who took part in Detroit's race riots in the 1960s be physically castrated. Dr. Roden, who treated Thomas Davis, came to the U.S. from Vienna in the early 1950s. According to Rudin's autobiography, War and Mayhem, he had been a member of the Hitler Youth Movement and then served a short stint as a Nazi soldier. 
Dr. Jolly West, that's Lewis Jolyon West, about whom we have spoken in many programs, uh, perhaps the best known uh, of the military and CIA's MK Ultra scientists and mind control specialists, uh, helped to place Jack Ruby under mind control. Dr. Jolly West was a protege of Roden, so that will give you an idea of how important Roden was, and he treated Eli Davis. Eli Davis was networked with, among others, Jack Ruby, hence uh, some of his connections to the JFK assassination. Once again, Alborelli and company write, In his 1977 pursuit of Enigma Thomas Eli Davis, newsman Seth Cantor, K-A-N-T-O-R, also revealed that the Texas Major was released from his Tangier jail cell in early December 1963 through the intervention and assistance from, quote, the mysterious CIA contract assassin known only by his CIA cryptonym Q.J. Wynn, unquote. Camper provides no source for his information on Q.J. Wynn, and Camper is now dead. Readers of this book now know that the leading figure of the Q.J. Wynn program was former Nazi SS officer Otto Skorzemi, and it is this fact that makes Davis's saga even more intriguing. Well before Camper wrote about Thomas Davis, Dallas Morning News reporter Earl Goltz gained knowledge of Davis's links to another major player in the assassination story, Jack Ruby, Oswald's assassin, and to several other unsavory Texas gunrunners. Taken together, these links advance the mystery of Thomas Davis into, quote, the stratosphere of serpentine connections, unquote. On July 10th, 1976, Goltz will a greatly overlooked morning news account concerning Jack Ruby's role in running guns to anti-Castro forces in Cuba. Goltz writes that after Ruby's arrest for murdering Lee Harvey Oswald, Ruby, quote, was concerned that the name of a gun runner for anti-Castro Cubans might come up during his 1964 trial in Dallas, unquote. The name was Thomas Eli Davis, Jr., Goltz further revealed, quote, both Davis and Ruby said they had met several times before the assassination and discussed gun running as a lucrative business, but each of them denied ever engaging in the business together. Uh, that I would not view as absolutely uh, definitive under the circumstances. They are both uh, covert operators and uh, Ruby an organized crime operator, so they're certainly not going to be altogether candid with uh, a Dallas Morning News reporter. And in addition to his links to Jack Ruby, uh, Thomas Eli Davis also had links to Lee Harvey Oswald, according to his wife. Davis's wife's statement to the author in 2004 continues verbatim, quote, The other Oswald, the man that they said killed the president, I had no idea who he was until his name was in the newspapers. But when I saw his picture, I remembered him right away from being in Mexico at the hotel thing with Tom. He and Tom had been together for a few days. That frightened me a lot, but Tom said to forget about it. So again, 
Thomas Eli Bayless, certainly a gun-running acquaintance of Jack Ruby's, uh, someone who had apparently networked with Lee Harvey Oswald as well, and uh, someone who, as we will see, had extensive dealings with another Oswald. This not related to Lee Harvey Oswald. This is a Swiss-born multi-agency intelligence operative who worked for various countries and who was uh, part of the post-World War II Nazi milieu in Spain under fascist dictator Francisco Franco and networked with Otto Scorzani. And this guy's name, again, is Victor Moritz Oswald, not to be confused with Lee Harvey Oswald, no relation. Victor Moritz Oswald, Moritz, by the way, is capital M-O-R-I-T-Z, was born on November 15th, 1909, in Lucerne, Switzerland. Although throughout his life, he used several different birth dates. He was the youngest of three boys in his family. Ruffel is known about his early life, but during World War II, he served as a member of Bill Donovan's OSS, by the way, as um, veteran listeners no doubt note. Uh, the Office of Strategic Services was America's World War II intelligence service and the forerunner of the CIA, continuing about Oswald. Oswald, again, Victor Oswald, moved to Spain in about 1948 and established several small businesses, including branch offices for his brother's chemical concerns, which were based in Germany. That obviously uh, refers to something that must have been involved with IG Farben as they completely dominated the chemical business in Germany and much of it around the world. Continuing. During the war, Oswald became close friends with Alfred Barth, B-A-R-T-H, the Vice President for Middle European Affairs for the Chase National Bank in New York, owned by the Rockefeller family. Barth was a close friend of John McCloy, who was also with the Chase National Bank and who in 1964 would become a member of the Warren Commission. In the early 1950s, I would add, John J. McCloy was also U.S. High Commissioner for, for Germany and oversaw the release of many Nazi war criminals, not only into the service of the Galen Organization, but also into uh, the Project Paperclip program as well. Continuing. In 1950, Barth traveled to Madrid to meet with Generalissimo Franco, and it was Victor Oswald who accompanied him to the private meeting. Not long afterward, Oswald became the official representative for the Chase Manhattan Bank in Spain, having been appointed by his friend Lawrence Rockefeller. Oswald was also a close friend and business partner with Pierre S. Dupont III, obviously a very well-connected individual, and he had some other connections as well. Oswald was well-liked in Madrid's business community. He was a reserved and low-key person, always keen to talk business. He was also a low-profile member of Madrid's large coterie of former Nazis, some of whom joined him in his various business ventures, including Arno Ricard 
Butner, B-U-E-T-T-N-E-R, who, according to the Federal Register of 1942, was on the list of, quote, obnoxious Germans proposed for repatriation from Spain, unquote, and who used Oswald's home address for several years on his personal letterhead. And uh, that isn't all. Uh, you can guess if he was uh, doing a lot of business, including uh, networking with former Nazis. As someone said in one of the afterward essays in this book, talking about someone like Sprozami or that ill as an ex-Nazi, it's like talking about an ex-cockroach. <laughs> no such thing. Skipping down in this uh, book. Significantly, Victor Oswald was also a long-time business partner with fellow Madrid resident Otto Scorzani, who, more importantly, end of the point here, was present for Davis's meeting with Victor Oswald. It is worth repeating precisely what Davis's wife revealed to the office. Now, this again, Davis is Thomas Eli Davis, uh, the governor apparently subjected to something like mind control by Ernst Wilden, uh, a third like alum, and also uh, networking, that is to say Thomas Eli Davis, with Jack Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald. Repeating this last uh, couple of sentences. Significantly, Victor Oswald was also a long-time business partner with fellow Madrid resident Otto Scorzani, who, more importantly, and to the point here, was present for Davis's meeting with Victor Oswald. It is worth repeating precisely what Davis's wife revealed to the authors. Palm knew Victor Oswald. I mean, it was obvious to me. I don't know where they had met before, but Palm told me he'd been there in Madrid twice before. The other man there in Madrid at that meeting was a German who had a long, ugly scar that cut down one side of his face. I don't remember if I heard his name. He didn't say much, but I sensed Tom knew him also. We were there for a while. I went out for something, but came back just as they were finishing up. And the author goes on to say, Clearly, the German with the long, ugly scar was Otto Scorzani. Scorzani's office was only about two blocks away from Oswald's. That Scorzani was a participant in the meeting, which Davis's wife said, quote, lasted about 45 minutes to an hour, throws new light on the gathering. Additionally, here we should consider that a 1958 CIA memorandum that reads, quote, Grand Master of Arms Traffic for Algeria is former Nazi officer of the SS, subject Otto Scorzani, who is installed in Madrid, principal military advisor to Nasser in Egypt. By the way, the uh, role of Scorzani in recruiting many Nazi war criminals to serve not only in the nascent Egyptian intelligence service, which requested help from Alan Dulles, but also for the uh, Egyptian Military Intelligence Service as well, is something we have covered at length in, among other programs, AFA program number three. We came back to it in uh, AFA program number 22 and in uh, a for-the-record program as well. Continuing. Scorzini and Victor Oswald had known each other since at least 1951. 
This was the point during which Scrosini was establishing an independent engineering office in Madrid. Introductions between the two appear to have come through Johannes Bernhardt, B-E-R-N-H-A-R-D-T, the former senior SS intelligence officer who headed SOFINDUS, that's capital S-O-F-I-N-D-U-S, all in capitals, the corporate network used by the Nazis in Spain. One more time. Introductions between the two, that is Victor Oswald and Scorzini, appear to have come through Johannes Bernhardt, the former senior SS intelligence officer who headed Sofindus, the corporate network used by the Nazis in Spain. Readers may recall that Sofindus assets were required, were acquired by the Allies after the war. One more time. Readers may recall that Sofindus assets were acquired by the Allies after the war. Victor Oswald, as a lead British intelligence operative in addition to his OSS duties, was involved in the post-war acquisition of Sofindus, placing him in close contact with Bernhard. Bernhard had contacted the Allies even before the war ended, attempting to transfer millions of dollars of Sofindus assets in return for favorable treatment. That offer was graciously accepted. In 1951, Victor Oswald and Johannes Bernhardt were joined by Otto Scorzemi, who had been transferred to Spain by U.S. intelligence. This new business relationship with the revamped Sofindus was the intended cover for much of the intelligence and covert activity carried out by Scorzemi. One contract alone provided great legitimacy to Scorzemi's work with Victor Oswald. This was the Otto Wolf Steel Company out of Germany, in which Ilsa, Otto's wife, also played a prominent role. Uh, We spoke about the Otto Wolf Steel Company. That was one of the companies that was folded, at least for a time, into Vereinigte Stolwerke, or United Steel. That was a Wall Street financed consortium of German steel companies, which eventually became renamed Thiessen AG, uh, one of the central elements involved with the Thiessen Industrial Empire, of course, was the Bush family, as we have spoken about in numerous programs, and also the Thiessen uh, Financial and Industrial Empire is deeply involved with the remarkable and deadly Borman Capital Network. Um, what we're going to talk about uh, next is a speculative element. Um, it is not really all that speculative. <clears throat> the uh, author or authors of the book go into uh, the very suspicious death of a fellow named uh, Grant Spockdale. He was a close friend of John F. Kennedy and also was uh, purportedly involved with some of the uh, romantic slash 
sexual escapades around El, around uh, JFK. Uh, those were real. They were also greatly exaggerated and apparently used by his en- enemies. And one of the people with whom Grant Stockdale was networked was Bobby Baker. Bobby Baker had strong organized crime connections. He had very strong connections to LBJ. He also was a lobbyist for General Dynamics, among other major defense contractors. And one of the ways that Bobby Baker basically uh, achieved what he did in his power networks was through the manipulation of desirable women. He was very much involved with Ella or Ellen Romich, uh, a woman from East Germany, reported to be a Soviet slash East German spy, but described by Bobby Baker as, quote, a Nazi, unquote. And we have noted in our last program that the journalist flogging the Ellen Romich was a dangerous Soviet spy, and she was boinking uh, JFK, was a guy named Clark Molenhoff, who was a, an intimate and associate of the OUNB slash Wackel element that uh, was linked to the uh, the former World Anti-Communist League, and even before that coalesced into Wackel in 1967, elements of what was then the WACCFL, the World Anti-Communist Conference for Freedom and Liberation, was basically creating uh, what the brilliant Berkeley professor Peter Dale Scott called a level one cover-up, which was basically the commies killed JFK. One of the elements that we have spoken about in connection with that was the assassination of OUNB chief Stefan Bondera by Bogdan or Boydan Stashinsky. Stashinsky appears to have been a double agent for the Galen slash ABN slash OUNB milieu and, uh, the killing of Bondera, which took place, uh, quote, coincidentally, unquote, on October 15th of 1959, the day that Lee Harvey Oswald, quote, defected, unquote, to the former Soviet Union, that was used to generate a propaganda meme that basically the Soviet Union was training assassins to work in the U.S. and that Lee Harvey Oswald was part of that training. Uh, Grant Stockdale, again, was not only uh, a very close friend of both John and Robert Kennedy, he was networked with Bobby Baker and apparently was involved in some of the uh, sexual escapades that Baker was involved with. By the way, uh, we're going to talk about Ted Kennedy. Uh, Bobby Baker's secretary was a woman named Carol Tyler. She also was apparently quite attractive and was involved in some of the uh, manip- manipulated sexual uh, liaisons uh, that ba- in which Baker specialized. Her roommate was Mary Jo Kopechny, who was uh, also a secretary to uh, former George Senator George Smathers, who was a right-wing Democrat associate of JFK. Carol Tyler was killed in the crash of a private plane in 1965. Mary Jo Kopechny, of course, died in the Chappaquiddick incident, which uh, destroyed, or certainly greatly 
crippled uh, Ted Kennedy's political career. He was, by the way, challenging Jimmy Carter for the 1980 Democratic nomination. The assassination of Alfred Lowenstein uh, basically torpedoed that. Lowenstein was murdered during the 1980 campaign. Uh, back to Grant Stockdale. He had been appointed by JFK as the U.S. ambassador to Ireland. Now, Ireland was a country, is a country, that in the 1950s and 1960s was a major, well, really well before that, was a major focal point of Nazi and fascist activity. Now, part of the foundation of the powerful Nazi-slash-fascist presence in Ireland was the strong anti-British sentiment, which is hardly a secret, uh, because they hated the British. Uh, the uh, Nazis found uh, a fair amount of fertile soil in which to plow politically in Ireland. Plus, Ireland is a staunchly Roman Catholic country, and there are profound connections between the Vatican and fascism and Nazism, as we have looked at in many programs, uh, AFA program number 17, uh, for the record program number 532, uh, and for the record 508, among others. It would be impossible to ex- to exaggerate the links between the Vatican and fascism, and that was another, in addition to the uh, deep anti-British sentiment of the Irish, that was another uh, foundational element of the Nazi-slash-fascist presence in Ireland. We're going to talk just briefly about that uh, in the uh, aforementioned coup in Dallas before we get to Grant Stockdale and his, quote, suicide, unquote, 10 days after Kennedy was killed. Uh, Once again, returning the coup in Dallas. A decade later, according to historian Dennis Eisenberg, E-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G, in his thorough expose, Reemergence of Fascism, quote, the early spring of 1961, so one of the most important changes in plans for the fascist international's future activities. The scene was Madrid, the exact meeting place highly secret, gathered around the table with such men as Scarface Scorzini, Rexist party leader Leon de Grel, again a Belgian SS officer and close uh, intimate of Otto, close associate of Otto Scorzini, Waffen uh, Waffen Ace, that should be Luftwaffe Ace, Hans Ulrich Rudel, and several other high-ranking Nazis. Among them was the son of Klaus Barbie. It was decided at this meeting to try and make Ireland the future home for their activities in the same way as the Argentine had been used in the days immediately after the war. The methods used were the same as those which had been directed against Perón. The country will be flooded with capital in such a way that the government would become dependent on the men who control the money purses. Now, Ireland was to become a kind of refuge, unquote, on the doorstep of Europe for fascist-minded extremists. The cultural and political soil in Ireland had been tilled for just such an ambitious endeavor since the early 1930s. Eisenberg continues, But why Ireland? 
Why should the fascists try and make Dublin their new base? For one thing, Ireland is much nearer to Europe, and the country has never been at war with Germany. Secondly, there are strong German sympathies among sections of Irish society, mainly because of the historic bitterness towards the British. Scorzini and two representatives of a German and a Swiss bank had protracted talks with members of the Irish government, and they promised to transfer considerable sums of capital to aid its economic development. The Irish, in turn, promised to give permission for the Germans to use large tracts of government-owned land to afford them tax relief. The Irish insisted that the new industries should be scattered widely over the country so as to get the maximum benefit from the influx of capital, unquote. So again, uh, not only the anti-British sentiment, but what's not mentioned here, the profound Vatican influence in Ireland, and again, the economic links between the German industrial and financial establishment, the post-war Nazi diaspora, or really underground right, as I have called it, and uh, people who were not so underground, people like Scorzemi, who was very closely connected to the money networks and also to the Galen Spy Organization and to the CIA. Um, There... Ireland had always had, uh, since the Third Reich came into being, even before then, uh, before Hitler actually came to power, uh, there was a vigorous Nazi espionage presence in Ireland for, again, the, the, their anti-British sentiment and their, the strong Vatican influence in Ireland. That Nazi espionage and underground presence in Ireland uh, grew before the war and it flourished during World War II and afterward in particular. There also were a number of powerful Irish fascist organizations. The most prominent of them was an organization called the Blue Shirts. They were very powerful and they networked with the Nazi underground before and during and after World War II. So that was another element that was in the mix here. We're going to talk about Grant Stockdale's uh, networking with uh, some of these Nazi elements uh, later, including Otto Skorzeny, who appears to have been involved with the assassination of JFK. More about that time remaining uh, at the end of the program. In the chapter four, Hank Alberelli and co-authors write as follows. On the morning of December 2nd, 1963, ten days after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, Edward Grant Stockdale, a ruggedly handsome 48-year-old businessman and cohort of both Jack and Robert Kennedy, fell to his death from the 13th floor of the Alfred I. DuPont building in downtown Miami. Stockdale tumbled eight floors from his business office window before his body struck and landed on the fifth floor ledge. He was wearing a white dress shirt and gray suit pants. Miami police investigators determined Stockdale's death to be, unquote, apparent suicide, unquote. 
Stockdale left no suicide note or letter, according to investigators, and despite their determination, it remains unclear as to how Stockdale went out the window of his office. It is uncertain whether the window Stockdale went out of was open or closed. Scant newspaper reports seem to indicate it was open. Requests from these authors and others for a copy of a police investigative file brought the response that the file was no longer available. One official, who declined to be named for this book, said he thought the file, quote, had been either lost or misplaced years ago, unquote. The fact preceding his so-called, quote, suicide, unquote, only served to compound the difficulty of believing the investigator's conclusion. Stockdale, as usual, arrived at his office about 10 a.m. on the morning of Monday, December 2nd, 1963. His office was on the 13th floor of the office building in downtown Miami. Stockdale was unable to get into his office because it was locked and he didn't have a key with him. His administrative assistant, who usually opened the office each day, was at a dental appointment. She would arrive at about 10.30 a.m., 10 minutes after Stockdale's death. Finding his office door locked, Stockdale had gone across the hall to a law office and asked Mary Ruth Hauser if anyone had a key to this office. Hauser told Stockdale that she would call the building's manager to come with a key. Stockdale waited while Hauser made the call. She recovered the next day, quote, He followed me into my office and stood there while I called for... Begin again. He followed me down to my office and stood there while I called down for a key. He stood there very calmly. He didn't seem at all agitated. Somehow, the subject of the president's death came up. He told me he was in his office when his wife called to tell him that the president had been shot. He said he just got down on his knees and prayed, unquote. After this, a person with a key arrived, and Stockdale and Hauser went across the hall, still talking. As Stockdale entered his now-opened office, Hauser's desk phone started ringing, and she excused herself to answer it. Hauser told police that, quote, about five minutes later, unquote, there was this terrible thud, unquote. It was the sound of Stockdale's body striking the roof ledge of the top floor of the Florida National Bank and Trust, about 75 feet below his office. And Stockdale's daughter, Anne, when interviewed in June of 2004, uh, did not go into some of the links to uh, Stockdale's uh, time as U.S. Ambassador to Ireland and does not go into uh, the links to uh, Bobby Baker and the Ellen Romech affair. Uh, the author here, incorrectly in my opinion, distinguishes between the uh, hanky-panky and uh, espionage and political influence of arranging uh, by Bobby Baker and the National Security Establishment. I think they are intimately connected. That, however, is my opinion. More about Grant Stockdale's death. Interviewed in June of 2004, 
Grant's buffer and Stockdale, apparently acutely aware of the dangers of speaking candidly about her father's alleged suicide even four decades later, made no reference to revelations that rocked D.C. politics in the fall of 1963, including the Bobby Baker scandal that had forced her family to leave Dublin and the Ellen Lomach affair. Perhaps for Grant's daughter, the safer explanation was the military-industrial complex. President Kennedy asked Babby to go to the Air Force Base south of Miami to see if, against Kennedy's orders, Bombs were being loaded on the planes. Bombs were being loaded on the planes. I believe one of the reasons Babby was killed was because he knew that the government was being run by the military complex. The military complex didn't want the American people to realize, and still do not, that they were calling the shots. Babby knew he was being followed, and he told Mom that they were going to get him. And they did. There was an attempt on my life also several days after Babby's funeral. I realize now that this was a scare tactic to silence my mother, i.e., if you speak about anything, your kids are dead. It worked. Unquote. Author, and then the authors go on to say, author and publisher David Talbot writes that Stockdale, quote, flew to Washington and talked with Robert and Edward Kennedy about the assassination of their brother. On his return to Miami, Stockdale told several of his friends that, quote, the world was closing in, unquote. On December 1st, he spoke to his attorney, William Freitz, F-R-A-T-E-S, who later recalled, quote, he started talking. It didn't make much sense. He said something about, quote, those guys, unquote, trying to get him, then about the assassination, unquote. As intriguing as, Stock, as intriguing as Anne Stockdale's and David Talbot's revelations are, few were aware at the time of Stockdale's acquaintance with Otto and Ilsa Scorzini in Ireland and the possible impact that may have had on his untimely death. And uh, of the networking between Apostolosemi and the uh, aforementioned Grant Stockdale in Ireland, we read, and again, uh, Grant Stockdale had been appointed by U.S. ambassador to Ireland by John F. Kennedy. I'm returning again to Coo and Dallas. John Kennedy's good friend Grant Stockdale presented his credentials in Dublin on May 17, 1961, just weeks after McLeod, that is R.W. Scott McLeod, who uh, preceded uh, Stockdale as U.S. Ambassador to Ireland. John Kennedy's good friend Grant Stockdale presented his credentials in Dublin on May 17, 1961, just weeks after McLeod left the post. As ambassador, both McLeod's and Stockdale's duties included hosting formal and informal events for dignitaries and Ireland's elite. At this juncture, it is worth repeating the history between Stockdale and Otto Scorzini as revealed in Chapter 4. Quote, 
frequently attending these gatherings in all their splendor were Otto and Ilsa Sporzani. Without doubt, Stockdale was amply familiar with former Nazi SS officer Otto Sporzani, who often visited the embassy for meetings with various American businessmen, military officers, and intelligence officials, as well as various embassy staff members throughout 1960, 1961, and 1962. Former embassy personnel vividly recall Scorzini coming to the embassy on a mere, quote, weekly basis, unquote. Evidence also reveals that the Scorzinis were occasional dinner guests joining the ambassador and his wife, unquote. The relatively handsome, 48-year-old Florida businessman, quote, fell to his death, unquote, from the 13th floor of the DuPont building in Miami just 10 days after his close friend John Kennedy was brutally taken down in Dallas. As noted previously, no author until now has identified Stockdale's connections to Otto and Ilsa Scorzini and the possible impact of those connections on his untimely death. Well, yes, indeed. And another speculative element, obviously, uh, Grant Stockdale, as U.S. Ambassador to Ireland, was networking with the strong Nazi milieu in Ireland, including Otto and Ilsa Scorzini, and met with them repeatedly. Again, uh, it might be worth repeating some of this. Frequently attending these meetings, that is, meetings uh, with uh, between Stockdale and Otto Scorzini, frequently attending these gatherings in all their splendor were Otto and Ilsa Scorzini, that is, gatherings at the embassy. Without doubt, Stockdale was amply familiar with former Nazi SS officer Otto Scorzini, who often visited the embassy for meetings with various American businessmen, military officers, and intelligence officials, as well as various embassy staff members throughout 1960, 1961, and 1962. Former embassy personnel vividly recall Scorzini coming to the embassy on a mere weekly basis, unquote. Evidence also reveals that the Scorzini's were occasional dinner guests joining the ambassador and his wife. Uh, something that the author's speculate about in the book, and that is two trips that were taken immediately after the assassination of JFK, or in the, the more or less immediate aftermath. One of these was a trip by Ted Kennedy to Ireland. The other was a trip by Robert Kennedy to Mexico. And uh, the authors here, uh, Alberelli in particular, speculate that one of the things they may have been doing was to investigate, uh, more or less clandestinely, some of the facts concerning their brother's murder. I've never seen anything that uh, Ted Kennedy said publicly about JFK being killed as the result of a conspiracy. He, that may be wrong about that. But Robert Kennedy was quite candid about that and revealed shortly before his own assassination that it was after he got elected president and was in the White House that he would reopen the investigation 
into his brother's murder. Of course, his own assassination precluded that. Now, of the two trips of Ted and Robert Kennedy to Ireland and Mexico, respectively, the authors write, six months after the murder of his brother in Dallas, Senator Edward Kennedy, the youngest of Joe and Rose Kennedy's sons, flew to Ireland. He had recently announced his campaign to run for a six-year Senate term in Massachusetts, so perhaps the nostalgia and poignancy of following his brother to Ireland a year following the president's demonstrably successful visit was too much to resist. Perhaps, coincidentally, Ted Kennedy was in their Irish ancestral home country, Wexford, on May 29th, Jack's 47th birthday. At the time, the possibility he might be in Ireland for any reason other than to commemorate his beloved brother and to bolster confidence in the Irish-American voters in Massachusetts was never discussed in the popular media. He returned to the States, and less than three weeks later, on June 19, 1964, he was a passenger in a fatal plane crash that killed the pilot, Edward Zinni of Lawrence, Massachusetts. This was the third of four air tragedies that would devastate the Kennedy political dynasty. Pulled to safety by fellow passenger Senator Birch by, Ted was hospitalized with severe back injuries for the following six months. Toward the end of 1964, his brother, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, made a trip to Mexico City, ostensibly to observe the young radical movement in the country. Coverage of the mysterious trip was tightly controlled, and it was only years later that researchers began to speculate on the real purpose of that trip. Some historians argue he was pursuing links between the assassination of his brother and a network operating in Mexico. Considering the highly suspicious death of former ambassador to Ireland Grant Stockdale and his uncharacteristic display of alarm the week following the assassination in Dallas, it is possible that Ted had been seconded to Ireland in May of 1964 on a similar mission. So again, in 1964, Ted Kennedy goes to Ireland, narrowly escapes death in a plane crash three weeks after his return, and Robert Kennedy goes to Mexico in late 1964. There were many connections between Mexico and the assassination of JFK, including, as we have seen, apparently networking between Thomas Eli Davis and Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, to give you some idea of the uh, depth and nomenclature of the Nazi, we can't call it an underground, but the Nazi uh, presence in Ireland. Uh, we'll read a short section here that talks about names that we have spoken about many times. Uh, the H.S. Luck firm connected to uh, Yalmar, Yalmar Horace Greeley Schock, who was part of the Permanbex milieu and a blood relative of whom Robert Schock was the New York-based admissions officer for Albert Schweitzer College, uh, to which Lee Harvey Oswald was ostensibly traveling when he, quote, defected, unquote, 
to the former Soviet Union. Albert Schweitzer himself was the honorary chairman of Stillehilfe, as we looked at last week. That was one of the post-World War II SS uh, aid organizations headed up by Gudrun Berwitz, Heinrich Himmler's daughter. In a, in a section called The New Irish Economy and the Elusive Francois Genou, as revealed earlier, the U.S. philanthropic arm of the global petroleum behemoth Rockefeller Foundation provided the equivalent of $1.5 million in today's dollars in search of the pure Aryan in Ireland. By 1960, Rockefeller considered John J. McCoy was also representing American industrialist and avowed anti-Semite Henry Ford in Ireland. The implications become even more relevant to Otto Scorzini and his cabal's proposal for Ireland's economic strategy in the 1960s. Scorzini and two representatives of a German and a Swiss bank had protracted talks with members of the Irish government, and they promised to transfer considerable sums of capital to aid its economic development. By the way, I think Henry Ford would have to be the Henry Ford company. I don't think Henry Ford proper was still alive in 1960. I may be wrong about that. Continuing. We also know from author Martin Lee that, quote, rumors of Scorzini's presence in Germany out of, or of his influence being felt in Nazi circles are intermittently heard, unquote. McCloy wrote in the cable of President Kennedy's Secretary of State, Dean Musk, quote, there is a British intelligence document dated the 20th of November, 1953, entitled François Genoux, which contains some background on this mysterious Swiss. It notes that he is the literary executive for both Hitler and Bormann and, quote, possesses many Nazi documents, unquote. He is described as being in contact with British fascist Sir Oswald Mosley at the time, as well as Paul Dekop, who would eventually become head of West Germany's equivalent of the FBI, the BKA, despite his, impe- despite his impeccable Nazi resume. Indeed, he was even for a while head of Interpol like his predecessor and Scorzini's boss, Ernst Kaltenbrunner. Chenu worked for Dikoff in the Albert, and his credentials as an Albert agent are referenced in the British document, as well as his connection with the Naumann Circle and with one Frau Lucht of Dusseldorf, which indicates the H.S. Lucht form of Dusseldorf managed by Werner Naumann. Designated by Hitler as his titular heir, Naumann never relented from his commitment to resume the Reich in Germany to the extent that he was arrested in 1953 and charged with attempting to infiltrate political parties. After his release, Naumann took charge of the H.S. Lupp Company based in Dusseldorf, a firm that Otto would use as a front for years. The Lupp firm along with Jarmar Schock's Lombard-Ollier banking concern based in Dusseldorf, was a cornerstone for advancing schemes coming out of Bonn. No doubt, it was through these business opportunities that Ilse Skorzeny had access to Princess Marbert, M-A-R-B-E-R-T, whom she pursued to purchase property near Martinstown House in Ireland. Also critical during this time frame were the tightly held negotiations between Chancellor Conrad Adenauer, Otto Scorzini, and Dr. Wilhelm Voss, who was then in Egypt pursuing efforts to collaborate with the Muslim Brotherhood. 
dealing with the Muslims, was a feature for all of these players during the mid-1950s. By the late 50s, the Republic of Germany and the U.S. both were planning to flood the Irish economy. So that, uh, again, will give you uh, some idea of just some of the many names and the networks involved with uh, the German and German and Nazi presence in Ireland. Again, that has a long history going back to the immediate post-World War I period, and they've networked with powerful Irish fascist elements such as the blue shirt milieu. Uh, in the book Coup and Dallas, uh, Otto Scorzemi is presented very possibly accurately as uh, one of the executive tactical planners of the JFK assassination. The fellow uh, represented very possibly accurately as the person handling things in the States was the aforementioned uh, remarkable French fascist and French SS man and well, intelligence operative and uh, well, basically a spook for major intelligence services, Pierre Lafitte. Uh, a classic man of a thousand faces, worked both sides of the law enforcement business, working for criminal syndicates and enforcement agencies, a true man of mystery. He had what appears to have been a diary indicating uh, planning for the JFK assassination. I think it is highly possible that that is an accurate diary, although I certainly, with someone as elusively enigmatic as Pierre Lafitte, and a true will-o'-the-wisp, uh, I would be reluctant to say with 100% certainty that that's what it was. It may have been a document that he kept to protect himself and or his family against uh, elimination in a cleanup operation for the JFK assassination or perhaps for any of his uh, intelligence uh, operations. Uh, Scorzini himself certainly was involved with many intelligence, uh, U.S. intelligence operations, and uh, was certainly networking with many of the Nazi elements involved with the JFK assassination. One of the strongest arguments for Scorzini having been uh, in the role that he was posited as being in this book was in the book The Great Heroin Coup by Henry Kruger. We've accessed Kruger's discussion about the International Fascista in many programs, AFA programs number 4, 19, and 22, among others. And we have noted the Paladin Mercenary Group that was uh, overseen by Scorzini and was managed for him by Gerhard Hartmut von Schubert, formerly of Goebbels' propaganda ministry. And it occupied a an office in Spain with an office of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. And you didn't just share an office with a branch of the CIA. Uh, you were working for and with them. And again, the International Fascista is discussed by Henry Kruger in some of the aforementioned broadcasts and in the book The Great Heroin Coup as being inextricably linked 
with the media involved in the JFK assassination. And many alumni of the station JM Wave Bureau in Miami, deeply involved with the anti-Castro Cuban activities, were uh, major parts of the international fascista. So, uh, and, and elements like the SAC, the OAS veterans, uh, who, as we looked at in full record 1222 and 1223, appeared to have been involved in the JFK assassination. They were also parts of the fascist international and Scorzini's networks. However, we are all out of time. This concludes for the record program number 1225, further exploration of Nazi connections to the JFK assassination being recorded on February 4th of the year 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.